Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, Canadians' trust in businesses and their leaders is sinking. We'll explore why. Plus, Slack is planning on going public, Marriott is looking at home sharing, and Elon Musk has agreed to guidelines for using Twitter. BIV's tech panel will tackle some of the latest industry headlines later on the show. It's almost May, and throughout the next month, we're hosting a number of events. Anyone wanting to sell a business will no doubt want to find the best price for their company, but they'll also want to make sure they find the right buyer. On May 8th, we have a panel of experts who will walk through how to do both. The discussion will cover common mistakes and how to avoid them, how and when to begin preparing for a sale, and advice from people familiar with the deal-making process. The event is called Finding the Best Price and Buyer for Your Business. It's part of our Business Excellence Series and will be hosted at the Vancouver Club. On May 14th, our next BIV Talks event examines money laundering in BC. You can hear directly from Peter German, author of the Money Laundering Reports commissioned by BC's Attorney General. The CEO of the BC Real Estate Association, Darlene Hyde, will also be speaking. Canada is preparing for the second wave of cannabis legalization, as are investors and businesses. On May 22nd, our Cannabis 2.0 event will size up the players, the products, and the opportunities in this expanded market. We'll look at edibles, infused beverages, topicals, and vapes, as well as more. For more information on this and all of our other events, you can visit biv.com slash events. And finally, ride sharing appears to be on track to come to British Columbia this year. You can join BIV for an introduction to the road ahead. BIV presents Talking Ride Sharing with Lyft May 29th at the Van City Theatre. For tickets and information, visit biv.com slash events. Here's our show. The 2019 Proof Inc. CanTrust Index shows that our trust in businesses and their leaders has declined significantly. Canadians don't just trust big corporations less, fewer Canadians actually trust SMEs than they did in 2016. Our trust in our bosses has also fallen by 10 percentage points. Bruce McClellan is the president and CEO at Proof. He joins me on the line from Toronto. Bruce, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, Haley. Thank you. It's nice to have the opportunity to talk. This seems a little bit concerning. Tell me a little bit what about what the index found this year. Well, we've been studying trust in Canada now for four years, and uh, the study is, is absolutely consistent. We do the same size of sample, we do the same time of year, and we ask many of the same questions. And for three years, we found very good stability in trust in Canada. And that was at the same time as you know we'd seen things like Brexit happen in, in the UK or the election of Donald Trump in the United States, where people were clearly unhappy, not trusting that things were working in their favor and, and taking some pretty extreme decisions at the ballot box. Um, Canada, on the other hand, had been a, a very stable picture. And I was saying to people, you could trust Canada to be different compared to what was going on elsewhere in the world. This year, however, we've seen a, a significant drop in trust almost across the board in, in almost every area. And we look at the major components of the Canadian society, government, media, large comp- corporations, not-for-profit sector. And what we saw this year was a significant drop in all those areas for a combined six-point drop in, in those sectors 
uh, as an average. So we think this is a troubling sign and something that Canadians need to be aware of and, and talk about. Why do you think there was that lag? Or, and are we simply catching up to the rest of the world? Well, it, it could be that some of the events of the world are influencing Canadians. Um, but on the other hand, when you look at either the United Kingdom with Brexit or the United States with President Trump, it's not exactly a picture that we would want to emulate. Right. So um, we we do see when we dig deeper into our Canadian results, uh, and and because of the size of the study and the number of questions we ask, we we think we really are the the deepest and broadest of Canadian trust studies. When we dig deeper, what we're finding is is a significant amount of the decline is happening in a couple of particular regions, and they are the the oil producing provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And then the Atlantic uh, region uh, as well. And there's a correlation with declining trust and economic difficulties. Mm. So when people are, you know, not getting jobs uh, or their their businesses aren't growing or there's, there's um, economic disruption in their community, their trust in a whole bunch of institutions is naturally going to fall. And that's where we've seen the biggest drops in trust in Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and and then in some of the Atlantic provinces. And we've certainly seen through voters voting how they do at the ballot box that show up in provincial elections. I think Alberta would be a, a very good recent example about a province coming out to vote based on how they perceive the economy to have been run and managed. Yes, that's a great example is the very recent Alberta election where clearly people were not happy. Clearly, they, they wanted a change and they saw that uh, Jason Kenney would, would give them a change that, that would take them in the direction they think they need to go in. So over you know a big voter turnout, I think it was a 71% voter turnout in the Alberta election and a, and a strong mandate for Mr. Kenney. On the other hand, change isn't always uh, what people want when they when they find out what it's going to be like. So in the past year, since we did our last study in 2018, uh, Ontario and Quebec both changed governments, changed premiers. And in Quebec, we saw a significant jump in trust in their premier by residents of Quebec. So Mr. Legault uh, has achieved a much higher trust level than his predecessor. But ironically, in Ontario, where there was a big appetite for change, Premier Ford actually has a lower trust level than his predecessor did. Hmm. So uh, two two different provinces where they changed governments, changed premiers. One trust went up and one trust went down. So uh, it, this is why it's important to do a study annually and see <laughs> just exactly how people are reacting to the decisions that they've made. Of course, yeah. When, when it, if I can, when it comes to BC. Um, you know, we didn't see major movement in trust in British Columbia. Um, in many ways, British Columbia uh, exemplifies the national average. So for many of our national results, the, the results in British Columbia for that same question are within a, you know, a few points of each other. One notable area where there is a significant drop from the national average is in relation to trust by British Columbians in either large corporations or even small and medium-sized corporations. Um, BC came in well below the national average for trust in the business sector. So that would be something that, that companies in BC 
want to think about and evaluate how are they building trust with the, with the residents of the province and with their customers, and are there more deliberate ways that they can pursue a trust agenda? That's a very good question. Why do you think our sentiment and our trust of corporations, big and small, is so much lower than the national average? It might have something to do with the nature of businesses and, and BC being a very resource-focused uh, economy mm-hmm. with a lot of its head offices being in the resource sector. It's possible that there's more tensions with the community and the population around resources compared to the kind of companies and, and businesses that are in other regions. Um, it could be that there's you know, a good deal of uh, corporations that are operating in BC but aren't headquartered there, so there's a feeling that maybe they're not as in touch with people as they should be. Um, I think you know, we'd have to look at a, a few different reasons for why, um, but, but it's significant this year how much BC is below the national average. And if I was a CEO in running a business in BC, uh, I'd be looking at everything we're doing for how we can build more trust, starting with our employees, but then also looking beyond at customers and, and even the general public. That was another area that was looked at in the report that I found quite interesting, that employees actually trust their bosses or senior executives less than they did in 2016. What would you attribute that to? Yes, we saw a, a significant drop in trust in CEOs or the most senior person at, a, at an employer. And for this question, and I just want to make it clear for your listeners that we only survey people who are in the workplace workforce. So it excludes anybody who might be retired or a student Mm -hmm. at school. So the question is about your own CEO or boss in your workplace. And we saw a significant drop um, from year over year from 55% of an average trust score down to 45% for for this person. And uh, I think, you know, CEOs have direct exposure to their employees. They they have the opportunity to communicate as much as they want and as frequently as they want. Uh, they really are in a sweet spot of opportunity to communicate and build trust, and yet we're seeing that there's been a significant erosion of it in the past year. So I think CEOs should all have a trust-building strategy and look at what's going on with their own employees as to why it's, it's fallen like this. Now, that, that drop um, that I mentioned, it was... Uh, BC, again, is similar to the national average. So the drop did happen in BC as well, uh, not not any more or less lower than the national average. Mm-hmm. One more question before we get to how to start building trust better. Small businesses. I think it's it's easy to understand why individuals and consumers may have a lack of trust for large corporations, particularly multinationals that maybe aren't necessarily on the ground stakeholders in a community. But for small businesses, why is there a growing lack of trust? I, I share your view, and we were quite startled to see the decline. In that case, uh, it was a nine-point drop on the national average from 45 to 36% of trust. And, you know, it, it, it could be just that there's this, there's this tension, again, of corporations not connecting with customers, not delivering what people think they should be doing for the community. And it's possible that businesses are all getting tarred with the same brush, mm-hmm. uh, lumped into the same category, and the differentiation isn't happening, happening as much. Um, I suspect if we did a, a, a question around uh, micro-businesses, um, and you know, here I'm talking about you know, retail stores, um, you know, owner-operated businesses, 
we might see some higher trust levels because those kind of businesses are usually associated with high quality service, people who are invested in the community, people who make a real connection with their customers. My feeling is that the smallest of, of businesses are probably still trusted. But this is also a warning sign for companies at the medium size that they can't take their trust for granted and they should have a deliberate plan to look at how they can be building trust. So on that note, that's the perfect segue. What should be part of a deliberate plan to not only start building trust, but maybe mitigating some impacts or blows that trusts at a company have, have seen? Well, there's, we've looked at the drivers of trust in terms of an organization, um, so organizational drivers. And then we've also looked at um, individual drivers of trust. And this year, you know, the survey is very clear that for leaders, and this would be for business leaders, but also anyone in politics uh, or other places, um, the top three are are acting honestly and, and exhibiting honesty in all of your activity, um, demonstrating an integrity in, in how you operate and conduct yourself, and being completely transparent. And those three were very clearly at the top of the list of traits that, that we asked people to evaluate in the behavior of, of leaders. So for a CEO, transparency should be something that they can do quite well because they have proximity. They can provide monthly or quarterly updates to their employees. They can they can make sure the employees understand where the company is going and the vision for the company over the next few years. Um, they can instill values and demonstrate that those values are being lived and followed in everyday decision making. Um, so there are things that, that could be done that I just think they're not paying enough attention and they're letting it slip as a result. We asked people about you know honesty, integrity, transparency, authenticity, decisiveness, kindness, empathy, um, but it was honesty, integrity, and transparency that came out on top each time. Hmm. Is there anything that leaders can do more so on a day-to-day basis to help build more honesty or at least create more transparency from the viewpoint of employees or consumers? Well, from for consumers, um, you know, there you're looking at the mix of things that build trust in an organization as well as the um, trust by the leaders. So transparency is still important. Um, consumers want to see that a company has a leader that they can get to know and, and hear about and read about and and hopefully turn into somebody that they can relate to. Um, there's no question that, that quality services and products are a big driver of trust. Um, so, if, you know, whatever your business is, do it well and deliver a great experience for your customer. Um, the, the trick is that, you know, that alone won't necessarily build trust. Um, that's important, but there are other things that can build trust. We're seeing a growth in the interest in customers or consumers wanting to do business with companies that share their values. So that would be, um, you know, some of the things we've seen in big global marketing companies such as Nike, where they are increasingly conveying the values of their business, of their organization, uh, that they believe align with the values of their customer. Uh, Starbucks is another company that's done that. Um, But smaller companies can do that as well. The important thing is to understand your audience and and make sure you know what what will drive trust with them and what are their values, and then look for common ground where you can align. 
Bruce, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on with your insight. It's a pleasure talking to you and thank you for your interest. That's Bruce McClellan, president and CEO of Proof. We were talking today about the 2019 Proof Inc. Can Trust Index. It's time now for our weekly BIV Tech Panel. With me in studio here in Vancouver is Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. And on the line in Toronto, Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. Thank you both as always for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Our first topic is Slack. Finally, after 10 years, the company is making moves to go public. We've talked about this a little bit before on the show, Linda, but we now have a better sense of their financials. What do we think of where Slack is at this point in time? I'm curious to know what Ali's going to say about those numbers. 400 million with what? It, how, what's the loss on that? About 140 yeah. million. Yeah. Yeah. Ouch. I'm thinking Ali has some wise words about that. <laughs> I'm excited they're here as a unicorn and they've got an office here in Yaletown and, and they're doing interesting things that perhaps are going to make them bigger, faster and stronger. But those numbers don't look amazing to me. But that doesn't seem to matter in this IPO world. No, not necessarily. No, Ali, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Linda, you're you're totally right. I mean, it doesn't. In this case, I think the the metrics, the positive metrics, uh, certainly outweigh the negative metrics. Uh, you know, there's there's still very good growth here in the last quarter. Uh, just in the last quarter, it, this this platform uh, since raising money has grown from eight million to ten million users. That's you know, that's a significant quarter over quarter growth in daily active users. So it's it still has a very solid trajectory of growth here, and with 400 million of trailing revenue, um, you know if they're experiencing that sort of growth, they should be able to overcome the profitability issue relatively fast. Like I don't know what their cash flows show, but the the trajectory certainly looks good. Now that being said, when you just look at it very cursory and you look at the valuation, it does look a little bit rich, and so um, you know I'm probably not buying the stock. Uh, on the listing date. I'm probably waiting a little bit for the price to come down. Fair enough. It does all seem to be about growth these days, be it revenue growth or user growth. And the company does have some positive metrics to point to, as you pointed out, Ali. I'm curious, Linda, there's at a point in time so much hype and excitement around Slack as a tool, easy to use, perhaps easier to use than some of the options out there. Has the competition changed? Is this as desirable a platform and a tool as it once was? Well, I think that there is a lot more competition out there. They've done a great job of grabbing the enterprise segment and and getting those paying customers on board. But I think their future looks really bright around healthcare and their big push towards becoming the platform of choice for, you know, Slack for surgeons where we can discuss health records in an encrypted and safe, secure environment. So they've achieved that on their upload side. They don't yet have that on their communication side, but that's coming. And so Slack uh, talking about that being a huge growth sector for them. And I think that gives them some really unique opportunities outside of just this basic Slack for business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think I'm somewhere else on on Slack. I think I don't think Slack survives the next five years. I, I think it gets acquired. That's my that's my guess. I, I think, think you're this, right. This yeah, sort of. Yeah, I think this is just sort of the a way for for the CEO to create some liquidity for shareholders and for employees who have stock options. I think, it, and I mean, and it, you know, it's also another case in point is this is not an IPO. They're not actually raising money. They're just listing their shares. So. To me, it, it looks and feels like 
is trying to create a mechanism to get acquired. And I, I suspect over the next five years, uh, Haley, to your earlier question around the sort of the competitive landscape, uh, well, Facebook's in this space now, Microsoft's in this space, so is Google. Uh, so I just, you know, someone is going to probably pick these guys up, pick the users and move on. And when we look at that competitive space as well around this healthcare, HIPAA compliance, Dropbox, Box are all in this space too. So everyone's heading over towards secure environments for medical health records and Slack would be a great purchase for any one of those companies. For sure. I'm curious though, because in our discussions around privacy, if a company like this gets acquired by, let's say Facebook, do we trust Facebook with our personal healthcare data versus say Slack, if it stays on its own, is there maybe a little bit more goodwill built in there? we feel perhaps a little bit better about the reputation of this company. The U.S. healthcare system had almost a security data breach a day last year. And what was the stat I read? 11% of Americans want Google and Amazon to see their health records. Uh, I don't think, I don't want Facebook anywhere near my health data for obvious uh, reasons that we've discussed at <laughs> length over the last year or so. So I, I think... Um, do I trust Slack more? I don't know. I think health records are so difficult. HIPAA compliance will help, I guess, in the in America, but I'm highly skeptical about who's going to buy them and what they would do with all of that incredibly sensitive information. Yeah, it, it, all of it smells to me like a like a you know um, uh, an antitrust sort of situation with the uh, with the regulators. Like I feel like they're gonna at some point. You know, once these companies get their hands on on too much data, I don't know what that line is. Maybe it is your health records. Uh, at some point, someone's going to step in and say, you know, you're you're monopolizing data, or you're you've gone too far. And uh, you know, maybe the health maybe health data is the the, the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's a, you have a reaction, of course, when you find out maybe a password's gotten out there or your personal history. But when it comes to health, it seems like a totally different area. It's very, very personal. And Especially data. since we know what happens with this data is these companies can be acquired. Uh, and who, as I talked about before, that an insurance company could acquire a Slack. And what's that insurance company going to do with all that health data Slack exactly. would start to accumulate? That's incredibly disturbing. Mm -hmm. Well, on the yep. topic of big tech, Amazon had its recent earnings report, the biggest profits ever on record, more than doubling its profit, but some slowing revenue. Ali, are we seeing a bit of a shift in terms of Amazon's size, its maturity, and, and how it might be playing this moving forward? No, I think this is just a short-term blip for Amazon. I, I think Amazon still has a lot of growing to do, uh, either through acquisition or, or just new products and services. There's, there's just so much uh, untapped potential with Amazon that, uh, you know, even on the on the media side that they're just, you know, just uh, starting to get into things for the first time. And so I, I think this might just be a short term blip, although you do see signs of this with other large conglomerates like Google, Google reported, uh, uh, you know, slower earnings as well. And so our sort of top line revenues than expected as well on the, on the marketing revenue side. So you're seeing uh, drips of this here and there, but I'm not sure it's time to sound the alarms. Mm, fair enough. What came along with this announcement, Linda, was a promise, a commitment to one day free shipping. This sounds like it's going to take a lot of infrastructure to pull off and it might not necessarily be a good fit for all regions. I'm thinking 
Yeah, so 800, landscape. 800 million they're spending in the first quarter to make that happen. Um, and Walmart sending out the cheeky tweet that they'll do the same without the membership fee. Um, but they do have a minimum purchase price. Uh, yeah, where Amazon's going with this whole new automated system is one day shipping um, really ups the ante for basically just Target and Walmart. They're really the only other two competitors. One might say there's only two in the market, Amazon and Walmart. Um, but it's I like the discussion around, in fact, it's going to be the 24-hour shipping, the same day delivery that is really going to be the the thing that consumers will grow to expect. And it may be that Walmart and perhaps Target are better placed to make that happen. So can Walmart stick to one day and really outdo, or sorry, can Amazon stick to one day and really outdo Walmart in the delivery? I don't know about that. Walmart's pretty committed to making that happen. And they're, um, interestingly, their retail stores are helping them become an even better delivery source for the people in their communities. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Ali, that retail footprint that Walmart has, that Amazon, I think, acquired largely in the Whole Foods acquisition, really seems to be Walmart's edge a little bit. And we're seeing Amazon play a bit of catch up in that physical space. And I and I think it continues to be their edge. Like I don't I don't think Amazon's even close to uh, having Walmart's footprint. You know, Walmart's are uh, much much uh, you know broader uh, have a broader footprint relative to, to Amazon. Even even Whole Foods and is only in very uh, targeted locations across North America and more affluent uh, cities and 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 areas. So. Uh, you know, Walmart's definitely at an advantage, and I would I wouldn't discount them here. This is not a not a uh, uh, you know a race they want to lose. I think Walmart's within I don't know like fifty kilometers of ninety percent of the U.S. population. Something like it's something. That. It's, it's a staggering. stat like that. Yeah, yeah. and 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 yeah. it's a or it's just got so many more stores than Amazon could hope to imagine. I can only see Amazon competing successfully on bricks and mortar if they purchase somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, and Amazon can also can also compete with technology. So, you know, they, they've, they've dabbled in uh, new, new sorts of technology that might work in rural areas. You know, they've contemplated drones, and I think they actually have drones delivering, uh, delivering uh, items in certain select cities in the U.S. today. Uh, it's, it's obviously that's that's hard logistically in in major cities and urban areas, but in rural areas that actually could work quite well. Uh, so you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, totally discount Amazon either, but Walmart has a huge advantage uh, when it comes to logistics. And they're making moves to make their retail smarter. They just opened their intelligent retail lab to the public, a fifty thousand square foot testing ground for new tech. Is this similar to Amazon Go, Linda, or is it? different in its ultimate purpose. I think it's an interesting difference in that they're both using AI and advanced sensor technology to see what's on the shelf, what's being taken off the shelf. Walmart seems to be using it more to track inventory and help their humans working in the stores, humans for now perhaps, working in the stores restock the shelves efficiently. Um, Where Amazon Go stores are about um, taking that to a, a consumer experience level. I walk in, I scan my app on the turnstile, I pick out what I want, and I walk out again. Um, the Walmart stores are not intended to use the technology in that way at this point. So I think they're quite different. And of course, in the Walmart um, example, it's a 50,000 square foot store. In the Amazon Go stores, they're small convenience style stores that aren't stocking everything Walmart sells, for instance, or everything Amazon sells. So they're really small, specific niche stores. So very different, same technology, similar underlying technology, but very different, um, very different use. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think the cool the cool thing here, Linda, is that we're talking about Walmart using AI, and yeah. I think that's you know that's that's probably more the story here than anything else. It's just that we're literally talking about Walmart using AI in in their store, and that's you know that's a sign of the times. And these and uh, these big box retailers, the the incumbents, however you want to define them, uh, are going to have to adapt and and start uh, adopting modern technology to survive. Well, they're playing catch up. You know, it's been 11 years since Amazon's been really pushing hard on this AI drive, this technology drive to get delivery efficient enough to get us to one day. And so Walmart's got some catch up to do. And yeah, it's great to see they're in tech and they're investing in tech and they've got their startup hub in New York and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I do find it interesting they're making it, it easier for their staff using the tech instead of a better experience for customers. We'll see how that evolves. I think that's going to be the question. <laughs> Another traditional player that is moving into the new 21st century economy, Marriott is launching its own home sharing service. It's just in the luxury market. So you can rent luxury homes in the EU, the US, the Caribbean, and Latin America. It follows a pilot in the EU. Is this going to put it in direct competition with Airbnb Alley, or is it maybe going after a segment of the market that Airbnb has only more recently really started paying attention to? Yeah, I think it's probably the latter. Uh, you know, this is just this just goes to the earlier conversation, uh, similar to Walmart, right? I mean, these these incumbents have to you know have to look for new ways to uh, drive growth and and revenue. And to me, this just looks and feels like. Uh, you know, this is an area that Marriott, Marriott uh, you know, has experience and they now want to apply technology to it and see if they can get some growth. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily a, like they're, that they're going after Airbnb's market, although, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount them. And if they want if they wanted to get into that uh, into that direct competition, I think they would do quite well, given their uh, given their experience in the space. Well, Marriott, they're considered, if not the largest hotel provider, one of the hotel providers. And if you look at the number of rooms Airbnb has on its platform, almost four times the number of rooms Marriott has. That (laughs) seems staggering. But of course, Linda, the advantage Marriott has is often they own these places. Airbnb is simply the platform that unlocks these spaces around the world. So Perhaps we haven't seen the end of hotels yet. They offer a very different kind of value to customers. Well, definitely not the end of hotels yet. And I think what is interesting about Marriott is they're going to be offering properties that are managed by professional property management companies. So these are not people's homes. Uh, That's a big distinction. I know when I'm looking on Airbnb for places to stay, I want to pick the hotel or sorry, the space that has a concierge 24 hour check in. I don't really want to see the guy's socks under the bed when I move in. I really (laughs) want these to be almost hotel like experiences. So I'm kind of the market perhaps that would look towards this Marriott model, although the Marriott model is perhaps a little rich for most people's tastes. Um, but Airbnb is trying to get this whole end-to-end experience and all of the experiences that you have when you travel, the planning for your trip, um, and how they're integrating work and travel with families into the um, experience that you have when you use Airbnb. And Marriott's not going after yeah. that. It seems to be a very high-end niche um, market that I think is going to be loved by probably the boomers, the traveling mm-hmm. seniors. You know, it it almost felt to me when I was reading the article uh, as if this is more of a WeWork style situation with just having sort of everything a little bit more uh, included in the in the uh, in the package versus an Airbnb, which can be very bare bones. 
Yeah, and Marriott talking a lot about the loyalty points. You'll get really talking right. a lot about their loyalty points. Um, so I guess they think their market cares about that. There you go. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting opportunities, Ali. You mentioned that the business component, I think of people who travel for conferences or meetings who need amenities, who need workstations. You don't necessarily get that in an Airbnb. I'm sure you can find some amenities, right? But it's almost standard in hotels around the world. Yeah, and Airbnb doing their um, partnership with um, the develop property development company in New York, creating basically what Ali just described, that WeWork meets Airbnb residential workspace in the towers at um, on at Rockefeller Center as well. So they're creating these sort of hybrid hubs of community where people can do do it all, stay with families, work, experience a city, hang out with locals, and, and environments. Airbnb seems to be focusing on creating environments within communities where the locals want to participate as well. That seems mm-hmm. to be an edge they're going after. Our final topic, we have to mention it because it feels like closing the loop on many, many weeks worth of discussions. Tesla CEO Elon Musk, he has agreed with the SEC to certain guidelines for how he's going to use Twitter. Really, these are around getting approval for tweets about the business, about new business, about production numbers, about basically anything tied to the company and his current companies. (laughs) Ali, the big question is whether he's going to follow them or how much this might Changes behavior. What are your thoughts on this agreement? I think he. I think he has to this time. I, I don't. I don't. You know. Although I don't know if he can. I think he. He won't have a choice. I think they're gonna. They're gonna keep him on a pretty tight leash within Tesla. The board will probably hold him accountable uh, to this pretty carefully because you know he could have been put in jail. Like he. He literally. Uh, you know. They were. They were talking about uh, contempt of court, and that can put you. Put you in jail. And that literally was happening over the last few weeks. And so I think, you know, uh, a lot of people look look at Elon Musk and say, you're sort of getting away with it. And, uh, you know, so at the end of the day, I think this is this this might be we might be close to the final straw and he's going to have to he's going to have to comply. Otherwise, I could see him you know, getting getting <laughs> heavily penalized. Yeah, for sure. He is considered by many to be a visionary, and you see that in his tweets. He's often tweeting about the future of AI and warning what's going to happen to the world or you know, the future for his many business divisions. Is this going to change his ability to kind of be this outgoing, eccentric visionary, Linda? Is he going to have to rein in how he talks about his ideas? I don't think so. I think that this do not tweet list kind of restricts him to um, financial milestones and other material Exactly. Uh, tweets. What I find, I I think his problem is going to be in his workflow. If he has to get a securities lawyer to vet the tweets around milestones and and material matters, uh, he still has to decide, is this a tweet I need to send to the lawyer to get him to okay it? And I think that he needs to, um, to be a little more careful about what he's, what uh, the tweets he's creating and just making those decisions in the moment. Is this something I need to pass on or not? I don't think that's going to change the way he is creatively. I have a feeling we're going to have these dabbles with him getting close to the edge of what he's allowed to do often um, and correcting himself quickly. But I don't see this in any way curbing him. I think he's pushing back hard and and this is a big part of who he is and who he commu- how he communicates with his community. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and uh, and I don't think he needs to, uh, you know, muzzle muzzle himself uh, across all areas here of, 
of thought and, and thought leadership. I, I think he, you know, he is a visionary and he has a lot to share and a lot of people want to listen to what he has to say and he knows that. Uh, but really what we're talking about, as Linda mentioned, is Tesla financial results and Tesla financial forecasts and, you know, uh, material information or, or non-public information that uh, directly impacts a decision related to Tesla or investing in Tesla. That's that's what the courts are going to be monitoring. And I'm sure, the, you know, potentially the securities regulators will be monitoring very carefully. And when you look back, he tweeted a lot about that. <laughs> there were a few <laughs> tweets in particular that got him in trouble. But really, when you think of, you know, someone who is the public face of a public company, there was a lot he put out there that didn't seem as though it got approval. <laughs> yeah, and indeed. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it's, it's a lot of CEOs are looking to this as an example. And now he's sort of got the framework for everybody. Here's what you're not allowed to tweet. Mm -hmm. Everybody might have known that before, but <laughs> yeah. it's a good yeah. reminder. <laughs> yeah, very good reminder, for sure. As always, Ali, Linda, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. On the line in Toronto, Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. And in studio here in Vancouver, we have Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO at Glue Technology Society. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to episodes at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, you can listen, watch, read more business news at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.